Okay, today's reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who, be- who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Thank you, Kristen. Thanks, John, for leading. As I'm Colin, I'm the pastor. Welcome. Uh, welcome to you watching online as well. Uh, the reading is actually on your leaflets as well, if you want to keep that in front of you. And there's an outline, although I forgot to change the title. We're not doing name dropping today. That was last week. Today we're looking at the wisdom of the cross. That's Andy. Okay, I've got a photo. Thanks, Robert. This is a uh, the late John Aguero. I heard about him. I was listening to a podcast about a guy who's almost certainly wrongly convicted by this Florida prosecutor. Well, this guy was a really aggressive prosecutor, and he was famous for wearing a tie pin and cufflinks with the electric chair on them. Pretty sick, eh? But this morning, we're thinking about the cross of Christ. We're thinking about a Roman execution device and because it's just always been around in sort of western our western consciousness we think nothing of seeing a cross as jewelry or on a wall or on top of a church so it's a lot harder for us to feel the foolishness of the cross that paul says it is but today's passage calls for us to just stop and think about the cross there's um, a non-Christian historian who's written a really interesting book, uh, Tom Holland, not the Spider-Man one, another one, written this book, Dominion, that helps us think about crucifixion as an historic practice. He says this, um, talking about slaves being crucified, so, fa- so foul was the carrion reek of their disgrace that many felt tainted even by viewing a crucifixion. The Romans, for all that they had adopted the punishment as the supreme penalty, refused to countenance the possibility that it might have originated with them. Surely only a people famed for their barbarousness and cruelty could ever have devised such a torture. No death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. Few cared to to think much about it. 
criminals broken on implements of torture, who were such filth to concern men of breeding and civility? Some deaths were so vile, so squalid, that it is best to draw a veil across them entirely. The surprise then, Tom Holland says, is is less that we should have so few detailed descriptions in ancient literature of what a crucifixion might actually involve than we should have any at all. And he goes on to say this, although we're used to seeing the cross in art and stuff, it was, that only started happening about 400 years later after Jesus' death. Was it considered an acceptable theme? So that's just to sort of set the historical picture of what looking at the cross would be like if you're not used to it. You know? And this morning we'll see why we stick with the message of the cross. Because it's the power of God to save Because the message of the cross shows up the best of human reason to be rubbish. Because it's God's deliberate choice to bring us to the humility we need to be saved. So there's an outline in your leaflets there. The message we're unstuck with. The message that is God's deliberate sticking point. And the message to stick with. So first, the message we are unstuck with. So the context of this passage, you might remember, is that Paul is appealing to the Corinthians not to be divided, but to be united in the, in the gospel. They started splitting into factions based on who their favorite speaker, preacher is. But Paul's reminded them to unite in the gospel that those speakers brought them. Not in the speakers, but in the message they brought. And Paul himself deliberately wasn't, we saw in verse 17, he deliberately wasn't fancy in his delivery so that they'd forget the messenger and remember only the message. So where today's passage fits in with that appeal by Paul for unity is that he's pointing out to them there's actually only two kinds of people in the world. I remember as a teen hearing um, a thing about music that stuck with me. Somebody said, there's only two kinds of music. Music you do like and music you don't. And I found that really freeing um, so that I didn't have to like all the cool in, only the cool indie music that my friends are into. I could like musicals as well and things like that. Just take it on merit. Well, Paul's freeing up the Christians in Corinth to be unified in pointing out that there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Perishing or being saved. Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When people are confronted with the message of the cross, they will either reject it and stay perishing, or put their trust in it and be saved. One or the other. Now it's worth pointing out, we're going to talk a lot today about the message of the cross. Paul doesn't actually give the message of the cross in this passage. Um, but he does give it to us later on. And on the table on the way out, I've just there's loads of gospel nutshells in the Bible. I've got a printout of several of them. There's about 10 copies of that on the table if you want to take that with you. But there is one in, in later on in this same letter. Chapter 15, verse 3 and 4. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here's the message of the cross. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So he gives us the event. Christ died, Christ being crucified in about 33 AD. That's a historical event. 
And then the apostle explains the significance of it. It was for our sins. It achieved something. It paid the price for our sins. And it did that according to scripture. So according to the Old Testament, with its story of um, fall and redemption and the idea of sacrifices substituting for sin. All of that foretelling us what's actually going on on the cross. The message of the cross is that all of us without Jesus to save us are perishing. We've all lived in God's world as if it were our own and that we were gods of it. And our broken relationships and broken desires and broken behaviors point to us, point us to how we've broken our relationship with God and rejected his loving rule over us. And perishing is kind of the title for the just desserts for that. But the message of the cross is that Christ's crucifixion, which looked like the ultimate perishing, actually is God's power to save us. When we rely on Jesus' death there for our standing before God, we are forgiven. We're blameless. We're made clean. We're off the hook. That's the message of the cross. And it's not the easiest message, is it? It's pretty offensive that you can't say you need saving. You can't save yourself. But this worst death of the best person can. It's not an easy message. So people try and play it down and focus on different messages instead. You know, things like Jesus will make you healthy and happy. Jesus will make you a miracle worker. But Christ crucified is the message that we're stuck with. Because it's the only message we can become unstuck with. Christ crucified is the message we're stuck with. Because it's the only message we can become unstuck with. It's through hearing and responding to the mess- in faith to the message of the cross that we receive its power to save us. So there are all kinds of ideas out there about what life is all about. But the most important question for everyone in the whole world is this. What do you make of the message of the cross? For those of us trusting in it for peace with God now and after we die, that's enough to unite us as we begin to live lives that demonstrate that new reality. But for many, it is the message that is the sticking point. And it's God's deliberate sticking point. It's our next heading. Those who reject the message of the cross see it as foolishness. I mean, Jesus is the son of God. All right, well, how do we know that he's this Christ, God's chosen one, his rescuer king? And what? He ends up hung upon a cross of all things. See, God deliberately chose something weak-looking to oppose our human pride. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. That's a quote from Isaiah 29. And in its original context, God is speaking out against those who think they can just sort of outwit God who think that really kind of God needs to work out how to fit in with them. Thanks very much. 
And it's a provocative quote for Paul to use to these Corinthians who are jostling for a better position in life and in danger of forgetting that it wasn't their smarts, their intelligence and wisdom that saved them, but Jesus. So Paul sticks a knife in with three rhetorical questions. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So the wise person, so maybe probably a philosopher, someone like a Stoic or an Epicurean, someone who knows a detailed system of thought and worldview and can rigorously make a case for it and defend it intellectually at every point. You know, if you got into a chat with them about it, you'd probably go away convinced. Teacher of the law, well, maybe they couldn't convince you why it was black, but they could certainly be able to challenge you on your legal definition of what white is and what black is. And the philosopher of this age, people who could debate in a performative way for hours on end. So in ancient Corinth, you couldn't go to the cinema because nobody invented it yet. But you'd go and watch these philosophers of the age in action, having a debate and pass off their opinions as your own the next day. Clever at work. So the modern equivalent is maybe um, the kind of personality they get on the Q&A show on the ABC. So altogether, those three kinds of people, champions of wisdom, human, uh, sorry, human wisdom and intellect. Now, Paul's not being anti-intellectual here. He's not saying, when you come to church, you need to leave your brain in a box outside, please. He's not saying, just let go and let God. Now, even secular authors like Tom Holland are beginning to recognize that the pursuit of science, of democratic debate, being allowed to oppose open and fair discussion of ideas, being free to disagree. Those ideas arise from Christianity, not in spite of Christianity, the part of Western culture because of Christianity. And in the Bible, Jesus reasoned. Jesus used parables to appeal to our minds. Loads of examples in the New Testament of the apostles reasoning and teaching and telling us to think, appealing to our memories and our minds. So our brains and our ability to reason and to be clever are gifts from God, good gifts that he expects us to use. It's just that our wisdom and intellect can't save us. We can't think our way out of the consequences of sin and back into God's grace. So Paul is asking with these questions, when the best examples of the wisest and cleverest Stand before God on this day of judgment. Where will their cleverness get them? If you think about, just personally, the cleverest, most intelligent person you've ever known. If you really get to know them, you'll discover that they just have the same problems in life as any of us. They've got as much of a clue as someone who struggled to finish school has got about what life is all about. And how to be at peace with God. So our cleverness, our wisdom, our intellect in this life are good things, important things even. But in terms of our standing before God and being at peace with him, they can't win us salvation. We can't think our way out of sin and its consequences. And so God was pleased through the folly of the message of the cross to save us. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, 
God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. This is the only key to life that there is. In terms of being reconciled to God, even the highest human wisdom and intellect achieve nothing. God has made it foolish for those purposes. In other words, there's no path out of perishing that doesn't involve humbling yourself before God. So for us to be saved, we first of all need to admit that we need saving. And if we were dependent on our own wisdom and intellect to know God, to know salvation, what would we come up with? It would always be corrupted by our sinful nature. And we see that, don't we, in the world's religions and philosophies and structures of thought, that they're always baffling, complicated. You're always never quite sure if you've got there with them. They keep the good stuff a mystery for just a few, and they stack the odds against you. Their burden is heavy. But it takes humility to look unflinchingly at Christ crucified and consider that something so awful, so low, so weak, that's the thing we need to save us. I mean, if the cross is the solution, how bad must our problem be? If the cross is the solution, how off the mark must our own efforts to win at life and save ourselves be? It takes humility. Now, God isn't interested in you being able to win every argument as you share this message of the cross. He just wants you to have the message of the cross. So there's a thing called apologetics, giving good answers to objections to Christianity. Um, And those have their place, okay? People can be helped to not just dismiss Jesus out of hand because of genuine questions that they have. Um, Things like, you know, why does God allow suffering? That kind of thing. So good resources to read. There's The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Have those good answers to common objections up your sleeve. But in the end, people need to put their trust in Jesus and his message of the cross, not an argument. People need to trust in the message of the cross. And it's a strange message, isn't it? It's a strange message that more often than not, people will think sounds foolish. Now, that doesn't mean we don't share it. It just means we don't wait until it sounds cool to share it. We don't wait until we've met all the conditions on people's checklist before we share it. Because it's never going to sit comfortably. Got a slide, thanks, Robert, of sovereign citizens. Have you heard of it? Have you come across articles like sovereign citizens? People get into trouble with the law and they say, oh, your law doesn't apply to me. Because I'm a sovereign citizen. I'm like independent of your state or whatever. So they get a speeding fine. They read a load of rubbish on Facebook about medieval laws. Declare themselves a king. And, uh, and then they turn up at court saying, well, you owe me an explanation to the court. This bloke tried it. And he could have got away with just going on a road safety course. Instead, he got uh, points on his license and a $2,000 fine. Plus costs. Well done. 
But this, when people reject the cross because it doesn't fit in with how they think sh- things should be, well, that's what they're doing with God. They're claiming to be sovereign. You see, people tend to think that God is in the dock and it's up to him to prove themselves to them. I think God is in the dock and he's got to prove himself to them. Verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Uh, Tom Holland, again, helps us understand how this message of the cross would have gone down at the time, how it would have been a stumbling block and foolishness. So to Greeks and Romans, that a man who had himself been crucified might be hailed as a god could not help but be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, obscene, grotesque. The ultimate offensiveness, though, was to Jesus' own, the Jews. The Jews, unlike their rulers, did not believe that a man might become God. They believed that there was only one almighty, eternal deity, creator of the heavens of earth. He was to be worshipped to them as most high God, Lord of hosts. Empires were his to order, mountains to melt like wax. To such a God of all gods, sorry, that such a God of all gods might have a son, and that this son suffered the fate of a slave, might have been been tortured to death on a cross, were claims as stupefying as they were to most Jews, repellent. No more shocking a reversal of their most devoutly held assumptions could possibly have been imagined. Not merely blasphemy. It was madness. That's how the cross was a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Jews and Greeks, each in their own way, demanding Jesus present credentials that they find acceptable. So Jews look for signs. They look for manifestations of the supernatural power to convince the skeptic. So this still goes on today. I got a leaflet in our letterbox recently from the church in the community center there. It said, come and receive your miracle, it said. Sounds nice. Well, can't you just send it me in the post? And some churches pursue that kind of thing because they think that is what's going to get people across the line. That's what's going to get people interested in Jesus. The signs, uh, the Greeks sought wisdom. So finely made watertight arguments delivered convincingly. Frameworks of thoughts defensible at every point. A scheme of works. But sooner or later, even those who have experienced or even done the most miraculous of miracles had the highest of highs. Even those who are convinced there is a wisdom and reasonableness about Christianity, sooner or later, everyone has to reckon with the gospel message that Jesus went through the lowest of lows on the cross. There's no going around the cross. There's no sweetening the deal, softening the blow. It's the buffer At the end of the train tracks that we can't avoid. We'll either reverse away from it or we'll secure ourselves to it. The message of the cross isn't a miraculous sign or an intellectual proposition to meet people where they're at. To fit in with them. 
The question is not does the message of the cross fit in with how I see things, but rather the question is, do I fit in with the message of the cross? It's not good advice. It's good news. It's news about what God has done in history to save us rather than advice about what we can do to reach God. Jesus isn't just, just, Jesus doesn't just bring good news. Jesus is the good news. And the challenge is the message of the cross looks like foolishness until our eyes are opened and we're humble enough to know we need it. And so the message of the cross, finally, is the message to stick with. Our last heading, the message to stick with. So we're seeing people demand signs, demand wisdom, whatever that looks like in our modern world. That's what they demand, but that's not what they need. What they need is the message of the cross, the gospel. That's what people need to hear. And it's a message of power. As we share the gospel, people meet Jesus and are let in on the secret of our need to be saved and how God has saved us. So have confidence in God to use the message of the cross. Trust him enough to cross that pain line of moving the conversation from socially safe things to the message of how Jesus died on a Roman cross so that we might be forgiven. Have confidence in the power of that. And sometimes you, you can feel just woefully uh, unprepared for, to share Jesus, can't you? But the cross is just kind of our emergency pull cord intellectually, evangelistically. You might not be able to explain why God allows suffering. You might not have some killer arguments to prove God's existence. You might not be able to give a detailed defense of Christian sexual ethics. You might not be able to work a miracle to pique people's interest. But we can always turn conversation to what we do know, that Jesus loved us so much, he chose this death on a cross over his place in heaven so that we can be saved from perishing. Here's the encouragement for us. Verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So when you're called a fool for trusting in Jesus, for believing the cross is the power of God, when you're called a fool for that, remember God's foolishness is wiser than any human wisdom and God's weakness is is stronger than any human strength. We've all got key events in our life that deeply shape us, for better or for worse. Things about our families, our schooling maybe, traumatic events, really happy events. Things that shape how we think and act, our default responses to things. Well, now... For those of us being saved, our key event is the cross. Our key event happened to Jesus. And that changes everything. 
So it's not just that Christ came to save us, but it's how he saved us. He saved us in a way that deeply contradicts the world's ideas of victory and power. Christ wins through losing. Christ triumphs through defeat. Christ achieves power through weakness and service. Christ comes to wealth through giving it all away. And those who receive his salvation are not the strong and the accomplished and the wisest and cleverest, but those who admit they are, they are weak and lost. In short, Jesus pulls off the great reversal. What we've got upside down, he puts back the right way up. And it changes everything. It changes what success looks like for us. It changes how we conduct our relationships, how we do church. And the rest of 1 Corinthians addresses some of the ways this great reversal impacts day-to-day life. But here are some takeaways for us, about a minute's worth of takeaways, okay? Remember, there's only two kinds of people, the perishing and the being saved. So for those who's being saved, that's enough for us to stay united in for the rest of our lives. Stay united in the gospel as those being saved. Don't wait for the cross to be cool or easy to share before sharing it. It's always going to seem foolish to most people. You don't need fancy arguments. You just need the powerful messages of the cross. Don't return to treating the cross as foolish. So by that mean, don't avoid the message of the cross. Don't go around it looking for something more palatable, something nicer to talk about, more exciting, more presentable. Stick with the message of Christ crucified. Everyone sooner or later needs to face up to what they do with the cross of Christ. It's not good advice or a good idea It's good news that demands a response. And the right response to the cross is humility. Humility to say, I'm in so much trouble on my own, so lost, that the cross is what what I need. And when we say that and we mean it, we receive God's power to save us. And for that great reversal of the cross to turn our upside down lives the right way up. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to come to you this morning with the humility to stand before your cross, to not shy away from it, look away, go round it, soften it, but to have the humility to say, I'm in so much trouble on my own, so lost, that the cross is what I need. Thank you that Jesus went there for us. Thank you that all we need to do is accept what he did there for us to be at peace with you. Amen. 
We're going to sing in response now as the musos come down. Don't forget there's those gospel summaries on your way out if you want to take one of those.